everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. This week's guest is Dr. Rachel Lovell, who is a research assistant professor at the Begun Center for Violence Prevention, Research and Education. In this conversation, we're going to be talking about her really fascinating research on rape kits and what they are and how they can be used to identify serial rapists. So people who've committed more than one rape, so people who've raped more than one person. And Rachel's going to be explaining how you know, she did that research and what that means. And I'm really excited to share this conversation. But before we do that, I have a very, very exciting update to he- update to share. I realize I use the word exciting a lot, but I don't know how else to put it. Because last week, we completed one whole year of talking research. So it was the first anniversary. And it's been made possible only because of the guests and the listeners so thank you so much if you've been tuning in and thank you so much for you know listening and supporting the podcast because that's made it possible for us to get to this point and hopefully have many such milestones in the future but to celebrate this milestone we've organized a first anniversary webinar so a panel discussion on gendered and sexual violence during the pandemic featuring two of the past podcast guests so Dr. Sri Parna Chattopadhyay who spoke about rape and marriage in her episode and Dr. Nicola Henry who researches image-based sexual violence so tech-facilitated sexual violence. The panel will be moderated by me and it's on Friday the 9th of October so this Friday and the time zones that that the panel conversation will take place in are in the podcast description along with the Zoom meeting room details. So it's, it's online and it's live so you can join from anywhere in the world provided you're awake at that time, which I hope you are and you can join. But um, I hope to see you there and I hope to, you know, I'd really love to see you there. So all the details in the podcast description, please do join. And yeah, just really excited to see everyone there. So that's everything from me. See you at the panel and back to this conversation with Rachel Lovell on rape kits and serial rapists. So let's dive in. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Talking Research. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So to start... Tell us about yourself. How would you introduce yourself in a way that you'd like to be introduced? Uh, So my name is uh, Dr. Rachel Lovell. I am a research assistant professor um, at uh, Case Western Reserve University. And I work at a research center called the Begun Center for Violence Prevention, Research and Education. At the Begun Center, we do research on all types of violence, um, Mm -hmm. primarily doing all applied research or you know, depending on your field, we call it different things. I'm a sociologist by training. My PhD is in sociology. So we call it public sociology or applied um, research, meaning we work uh, with community partners and in the community in terms of our research. I got my PhD um, from the Ohio State University um, in sociology and mm. have always done research and always worked around gender. Uh, and, and so at the Begun Center, I've been there eight years. I've been at Case Western eight years now and been doing research primarily around gender-based violence, um, including sexual assault, which we'll be talking about today, sexual violence, but also human trafficking and intimate partner violence, um, all of which intersect, um, you know, in obvious ways. And um, yeah, I think that that's, I think that's the, the, the elevator speech. 
That's a wonderful elevator pitch. But um, how did you get into researching sexual violence and all of these really important topics? So I started doing um, some work with a colleague of mine um, when I worked at a different university in Chicago, Illinois. I worked at DePaul University with my colleague, Greg Scott, and he did research with um, intravenous drug users. And some of the work that we collaborated with was working around um, sexual violence of sex workers and mm. uh, who were particularly also, uh, you know, often did intravenous drugs as, as part of part of kind of what brought them into sex work. And uh, so I did research around that, really looking at the intersection of sexual violence, but also sex work mm. and, and, and drug use. And then I came to the Begun Center so we d- and did research on human trafficking and stuff along those lines. And my big foray starting into the sexual violence field in particular was in early 2014, we were approached by the then county prosecutor uh, mm-hmm. in Cleveland, Ohio, in Cuyahoga County. And, and he wanted, he was interested in us being a research partner on a task force that they had started about a year earlier, looking at the testing of, um, at the time it was 5,000 backlogged rape kits. We can Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what that was or what that is, but yeah, so it really started in, uh, as it relates to rape kits. And I started doing a lot more research. And in fact, since 2014, 2015 have been doing almost all my work in, um, sexual violence and uh, around the rape kits. Hmm. Is there a difference between assistant professor and research assistant professor? Oh, very good question. So, yes. So, so basically what a research assistant professor is, is that I just do research. I'm not tenure track. Um, and I know, hmm. you know, the UK has a very different sort of academic system in terms of yeah. the, than the US does and other countries do around tenure tenure track. So I'm non-tenure track and I just do research. So I don't teach. Right. Since so many positions now in the university system in the U.S., uh, the tenure track positions are kind of going away. There's a recognition that there needs to be, you know, sort of what sometimes what they call sort of special, special faculty. So that could be non-tenure track and you just teach. Or you just do research and you don't teach. <laughs> so it's a kind of, you know, uh, traditionally academics have been doing research and teaching. And so then there's this hybrid model. Mm. And especially as research, is, research dollars are being brought into the university, recognizing that our work is like faculty and we do that. We just don't necessarily teach, but we're doing all of the research connected to what, what we would traditionally been doing in terms of research at a university. So, so that means I, you know, I don't really teach. I have, and actually I'm co-teaching a course this fall, but most of the time I don't, uh, most of the time I, you know, all of my time is spent doing research. Mm, And tenure track is just more permanent academic employment. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, basically the, the, the model that's for sure going away, but yeah, so tenure track is the sort of you know, you permanently have a, a job here. Although we'll mm-hmm. see, you've, we've seen with the pandemic, that's not always the case as well as some universities have had to, had to let go tenured faculty as well, because there's just not the money anymore. But, but yeah, that's, that's the difference. So for me, it means if, you know, I can't pay my salary, I'm going to have a hard time staying employed. Hmm. Okay, I I think that's really useful to know this different sort of system in the U.S. and how, given how different academic systems can be across the world. So to get to your research, what is a rape kit? So uh, a rape kit is also called a sexual assault kit. And it is, it's basically a set of items, um, usually in a box or envelope. And those items are, usually include... Um, uh, and can't, you know, it's things to collect evidence from someone who reports primarily to the hospital that they've been sexually assaulted. So if someone has been sexually assaulted, 
and they choose to go to the hospital and have evidence collected as part of that and seek medical attention as part of going to the hospital, they will collect evidence from the victim, you know, in this case, like the victim is the crime scene. And so mm-hmm. they will take swabs, they will take fingernail clippings, they will take, uh, you know, clothing and other items that could be used as evidence. And um, they've, you know, the rape kit started in the 70s or 80s in the United States. They weren't as good back in the 70s and 80s, but um, they, in the United States, they've been uh, primarily many jurisdictions had the ability to decide about whether a rape kit would be submitted or not for forensic testing. Mm -hmm. And um, really until the late 90s, early 2000s, DNA testing wasn't really available. And when it was, it was too expensive for many rape kits to be tested. So Mm. a victim goes to the hospital, gets this evidence collected. It goes to law enforcement where they keep it in their sort of evidence along with all the other evidence. And in the United States, upwards of 500,000 or more of those kits, probably more, have been sitting untested in evidence uh, lockers. Uh, in police departments. So Why there's been the, so yeah, so there's many reasons for that. A it was DNA testing. You know, it wasn't available when it was, it was too expensive. Mm. But part of it was that there became a practice and a culture of really only seeing the value of testing those kids A when two things had to happen. One is that the the perpetrator was a stranger. So they mm. there was the idea that why should we test this if she already, we'll say she, but if she or he, but women are very heavily disproportionately the ones likely yeah. to get kids up, you know, 95, 99%. And with the recognition that men can, men and boys can also be victims. They just aren't likely to get uh, sexual assault kits taken as well. Although, and they're not as likely to be victims of sexual violence, but. Um, Is that, sorry, if I can just. No, please interrupt, uh, interrupt me. you there. Is that because. Uh, the police and whoever or or even you know hospital staff whoever's giving deciding whether to give this rape kit is mm. that because they don't see men as mm. likely to be victimized or is it just that there's different testing procedure for men uh, that's a good question I think um, all those things come into play but it, it primarily has to do with the demographics of victims so primarily men and boys who are victims of sexual violence, the violence for, for it primarily happens to juvenile boys, you know, young, uh, you know, young boys or juvenile boys, you know, sort of prepubescent boys. Um, and just like with young prepubescent girls, there is a, there is a reporting mechanism for, reporting and oftentimes they will get a sexual assault kit collected if they do report but um they often it's a delayed report so someone may have had a sexual you know so someone may have been sexually abused by the time the child tells someone they will go get the child you know assessed medically but that incident could have happened two months ago or three months ago and so there's not dna evidence um necessarily um, and most of the time there isn't because of delayed reporting, but uh, the, the other, the larger thing is like who of the men who get sexually assaulted, usually it's the more marginalized, vulnerable men. So this could be men, adult men who are institutionalized. Um, so they're in prison or they're in group homes or some other sorts of institutionalization that makes them particularly vulnerable. This isn't to say I know there's within the LGBT community, sometimes there's also grown men who are in relationships with other men or you know, sort of the sexual, the sexual violence is, is, uh, an, you know, sort of relational intimate partner violence, mm. but they are not likely to report and get a sexual assault kit collected. So I, I think there's less of it that they don't believe them. It has to do with who's the, who that the demographics of men who are getting sexually assaulted and whether they are going to be the ones that are reporting to police and reporting and getting a rape kit collected. So, you know, a, a lot of adult men, just like adult women, don't necessarily report sexual violence. 
and then there is the nature of of the the sexual violence and so the sort of physical differences between men and women with having you know for better use of the term a sort of cavity that can mm-hmm. hold evidence eat better if you know so mm-hmm. you know there's the vagina and, there, and you know oftentimes there's sexual violence often includes vaginal penetration and so evidence is kept a little bit easier than externally on the body. Uh, and so I think that's also part of the the narrative as well as to why um, men, A, you're going to get evidence, but two, uh, why men and boys don't necessarily report their sexual assault um, mm. or seek medical attention for it um, has mm. to do with, I think, all of those things. And I think part of it might be the stigma attached to reporting for men as well. Um, We do see, of course, there are, in our data, there are men who, and boys who got rape kits collected, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very small percentage, a couple, you know, three or 4%. Mm, That was a, that was a really good explanation. So you, you looked at how rape kits can be used to investigate offending patterns, right? So to figure out if an offender has been a serious serial offender so if they've committed more than one sexual assault mm-hmm. right so tell us about this study yeah so the main thing about rape kits is that they they set in evidence lockers in police jurisdictions because the police again really there was two things that they really they thought why test this if we know who did it because really the point of testing it is to help identify an unknown assailant. And two, if the victim wants to, or is able to participate in the investigation and prosecution, if, if both of those things happened, then when testing got cheaper and it was available DNA testing, that's when they might decide to submit a kit. So they thought, well, if she already knows who raped her, then why why test and two if she's not willing to prosecute what's the point of spending the money to test Hmm. and included in that because i'm a feminist scholar as well is all of the sort of rape myth acceptance and all the baggage that comes along with how we view women and rape and value of that so there's for sure victim blaming there's for sure there's larger cultural narrative around this but primarily, you know, law enforcement saw and still continues to see um, and investigate rapes as if they are isolated incidents. So, you know, they they really look at, okay, here's this one report and it there that sort of he said, she said comes into play. What does she say? Does that she being the victim, although again, it could be a male. What does the victim mm-hmm. say? Does this seem reasonable to me? And since they often Mm -hmm. don't have a perpetrator there, they haven't talked to a suspect, they're just weighing the merits of the case primarily from the victim's account. Mm -hmm. And then deciding, does this case seem to have merit? And so, you know, the reason why actually a lot of the kits weren't tested is because the cases weren't investigated because they they didn't see them as having merit. And merit, merit being yeah, like uh, you know, worthy of of proceeding forward and investigating. Um, so if something seemed strange, if something seemed off, if she didn't seem to be she or he really wanting to prosecute this case or moving forward or didn't return a phone call, any of those things, they just moved on, knowing also that the units that investigate sexual assault are some of the most under-resourced units in the United States in police departments. And so they get a lot more reports than they could possibly handle. And so they kind of have to cherry pick or weed out the ones that they think might be a waste of their time and focus their energy on those that they think have the potential to move forward. What they really couldn't have foreseen, and I think that's where the research comes into play, is what happens when you test a whole bunch at one point in time and then see what happens in terms of how many are hitting to each other? In other words, the DNA in one rape kit matches the the DNA in another rape kit. 
Mm. And so we call those kit to kit matches or look at this offender. Let's look at this person's criminal history. Oh my goodness. Look at all the things that they have done. And so they, they really couldn't have foreseen some of the things that we now are able to see because they weren't really, they weren't really testing them all at, at one point in time. I think mm-hmm. it's important to, to say that what we know about, and I think one of the questions that you said we might talk about is that what makes this data different are mm-hmm. several important things. One is that you're collecting what most of what we know about serial offender rapists and in particular serial fe- sexual offenders is based on conviction. So mm-hmm. here's this person who's been convicted of this crime. So now their criminal history says, yes, this person has been convicted. And then we watch to see, you know, how often do they reoffend, or we see what crimes are they now connected to or you know, what happened in their childhood or whatever, but it's, we only knew about them because they were convicted of that crime, but Mm. rape um, and sexual violence is the most in the United States, at least is the most underreported violent crime. And that's probably true elsewhere. Um, Is that, you know, very few rapes are actually reported, you know, between five in the United States is between five and 25% of all rapes are actually reported. Mm. And of those that are reported, very few actually make it past an investigation. So very few actually make it to a prosecutor to review. Mm. So there's this huge siphoning off of cases so that by the time someone's actually convicted of rape, it may be, you know, one out of a hundred of the rapes that actually happened, right? So 1% of all rapes, that person might be convicted of a felony for that offense. So mm-hmm. what we know is is an unrepresentative sample about these serial offenders because and rapists because so so many of them weren't arrested they weren't convicted of these of the crimes so we don't really what we know about them is is not a representative sample of rapists mm-hmm. and we don't know about all the other ones they may have committed just this one that maybe got them caught the mm-hmm. second thing that is different is that a rape kit is actually evidence that's collected at the time the victim reports. So you don't have to wait all the way to conviction to know about perhaps an event that happened, you know, like, so at conviction there, that means there's a lot more if between five and 25% of victims are reporting that and, and getting a site collected, we would know that much earlier in the process and you didn't have to wait for them to be arrested or convicted of that offense. Does that make Mm. sense? Yeah, that does. That does totally. I I mean, I want to go back to something that you said that rape myths are a reason why not as many rape kits are collected. And just want to say that rape myths essentially for anyone not familiar Mm. is believing in these inaccurate ideas about what what being raped is like or you know just having these negative perceptions about the victim survivors so things like it was her fault for being raped or that stranger rapes are more likely than you know or people from a certain race are more likely to be rapists right exactly so it's uh you know sort of perceptions of what real rape is so that that real rape you can't see my fingers, but I'm using sort of air quotations there. Real raping, mm-hmm. you know, it's violent. The, the victim fought back, um, yeah. physically fought the offender, that it was a stranger that, that of course, she has, in this case, we'll say she, but again, you know, that there's no, there's nothing, there's, she had no culpability in that. So she wasn't walking alone. She wasn't wearing certain kind of things. She didn't have, you know, she wasn't drinking. She wasn't using drugs. She didn't have any mental illness. She didn't have any physical disability. We see this a lot in our cases. You know, she wasn't, you know, physically looking older than her age. So if someone is, you know, we see that as well, where there'll be notations about, you know, well, she's 13, but, you know, she has, she has large breasts. She looks, you know, she looks older than her age sort of thing. So all those things had to be to to make the victims completely 
be viewed as she's not culpable at any in any way for what happened to her um and so those are kind of defined as real rape and so the public has that perception that um and and so do you know law enforcement and yeah. prosecutors and jurors and all these sorts of things we are incorporating that into our larger schema of what we think a rape looks like and for women i think it's interesting some of the prosecutors i work with and some of the research shows that in fact we would think that women would be more sympathetic to other women but prosecutors often say that they worry about having women on their juries because there's a sort of mental distancing that women will do and perhaps assign more blame to victims because they don't want to think of themselves as, you know, that couldn't happen to me because I wouldn't have done mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. I would have been careful. I would have been careful, right. Like, I would have fought back. I would have told them no. I wouldn't have taken a ride. I wouldn't have, you know, walked to the store by myself. And, you know, I I wouldn't have done any of those things. So therefore, this terrible thing that I'm hearing about, and I'm afraid of, and we've been taught to be afraid of our whole lives, it won't happen to me. Mm. And so I think for women in particular, there's a, there's a desire to try to distance yourself um, Mm. from that so that you, you would think, oh, that that won't happen to me. And then I think for men, there's the idea of like, could they, in particular, heterosexual men, could I look back into my life and was there a time when I perhaps could have misread a woman's, or maybe she's crazy, or maybe she's just making up stuff because she's jaded, or, Mm -hmm. you know, was there a time where I misread signals and she didn't really want to, or, you know, so for men, um, I think there's that sort of schema going on where they sort of discount because they don't want to think of themselves as perhaps being the suspect in that case. And the women want to distance themselves because they don't want to think of themselves as the victim in Mm. that situation. Yeah, that's really well explained. And what you said about the low reporting rates and reports being of a specific kind, so mostly of, you know, uh, stranger rapes and those kind of rapes getting more convictions it's also because most women who are raped are raped by someone they know so it's a friend or a partner or you know family member or so just wanted to put that out there as well yeah for sure upwards of about uh two-thirds um or more of um at least in the united states 80 to 80 percent to two-thirds depending on the study of um all rapes are committed by someone the victim knows. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to me meeting a stranger in a dark alley and, you know, just that's a rape myth as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really sad that the reason that so many aren't tested, so many rape kits aren't tested or it was because of a lack of funding. I think that's it's really disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it shows something about the priority of doing that. But I think there's also a larger perspective. And I I still find this very interesting is that when law enforcement, for example, investigates other types of violent crime, shootings, for example, burglaries, where you break into somebody's house, breaking into somebody's house or business or something, or other types of violent motor vehicle theft, you're stealing cars, invest, police will often investigate that case with the assumption of trying to find a larger pattern. So they start with the assumption that that their suspect has likely done this before or will do it again. So they'll look for other burglaries in the areas, other cars being stolen. They're looking for, you know, other shootings. You know, so they're looking for a, a pattern, assuming that the person has done it again or will or in the past or something. But for rape, also, you know, a violent crime, that same thing that, you know, by and large, they don't, they view it as in isolation. They view it as like, here's this one incident. Let me, let me see what this one incident looks like. And again, most of the time, the information comes first from the victim's reporting of it. 
so they're sort of saying like, does this make sense? Does this look like it's right? Do I have time to investigate this? Does this look like there may be problems with this case that if I have limited amount of resources, should I be putting him toward this case? Hmm. And, you know, I think what our research really shows and is, you know, one of the first things when they started testing so many rape kits at one time, as I kind of talked, we talked about earlier was that there were so many that were hitting to each other. Mm. So they're like, you know, oh my gosh, like look at all these rape kits that are connected to other rape kits through DNA. Mm. And so you could see then a better picture of who the suspects are assaulting and how many times that they're doing this. And then how many of those cases were not adjudicated, meaning the, the perpetrator wasn't held accountable for the crime because nobody followed up on the case. And then after that, this person went on to kill this other person and rape this other person. And, you know, they just continued to do these terrible things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you look over time and you're just like, oh my gosh, look at all these things. In law enforcement lingo, it's sort of, they call it a sort of course of conduct versus incident-based. So in other words, course of conduct meaning you're looking at the the conduct, the full conduct of, of a suspect versus incident-based, just this one incident. And when you look at the offenders in a larger perspective, you can see two things. One is there's a lot of serial offending, much more than the research would had suggested. And again, we talked about why that is, is because this gives us a different view of, of offending, right? Because it's not at conviction mm-hmm. and it's earlier in the process. And two, uh, some of the research, early research we did looked at, there's the idea that serial offenders, you know, have a particular type of victim that they like to do, or they maintain a certain type of pattern that they mm-hmm. own, you know, that they have this sort of what's called a modus operandi or like a, an offending pattern that they stick with. Mm. But the, the rape kits are sort of saying, no, look, here's DNA that's connecting them, not the victims reporting, not the suspect admitting it. So if you look at those, they all, they're so different here. He rapes his son and then he rapes a 13 year old girl within two months of each other. You know, here's someone who's, he assaults a 50 year old woman and then a 13 year old girl. Uh, here's a stranger, here's his girlfriend, uh, here's the neighbor. So you can see that they're not sticking. It's called, you know, crossover offending. So they're not maintaining a certain victim preference. They're not assaulting in the same sort of way. Sometimes they break into their homes. Sometimes they force them into a car. And they're also, you know, not picking this, the same type of victim. And they're also not doing it in the same sort of way. So without DNA, many of these would never have been put together. I was going to ask, when we say serial offenders, mm. these are rapists who've targeted different people as opposed to them raping the same person more than once? That's a, that's a, good, that's a, a good question. Yes. So when I say serial, I mean connected to to the sexual assaults of more than one person in separate incidences Mm. so Mm. yeah not an intimate partner that they've sexually assaulted perhaps more than once Mm. um but it's you know two separate incidences of uh, that with um separate victims or i guess yeah i mean like we've never seen one where they assaulted a stranger more than once so yeah, so you're connected and it could be connected because of DNA. It could be connections right. because of their, their criminal histories and DNA or, you know, just no DNA and multiple sort of arrests or convictions for more than one rape. Mm. Okay. And I think it's important to point out that for rape kits, that not all rape kits have DNA evidence in them or as that was collected or can be extracted in the testing process. So just because, and it doesn't mean that the sexual assault didn't occur. It could be by the nature of the sexual assault, evidence wasn't left behind. Um, Or it could be a delayed report. Again, 
or there could be any number of reasons why DNA evidence wasn't, you know, on the victim basically, or mm-hmm. the clothing. Again, doesn't mean that the assault didn't occur. It just means that the evidence wasn't there. So there's, you know, about upwards of maybe um, half to a, to a third of the rape kits that won't have evidence, won't have, you know, DNA as part of it. Okay. And you've spoken a little bit about what we know about serial criminality and serial offenders, but I'm curious if there's anything else you found, you know, whether there are any patterns to this reoffending and, you know, any anything else that was discovered about these serial rapists? Yeah, so I think there's a common perception that a rapist is a different type of offender. So someone who would rape is a different kind of criminal than someone who would, you know, break into your home or shoot somebody or whatever. That that, that there's something about being sort of sexually deviant in that way that that they would be different in some sort of way. And I the the data uh, that we're looking at, um, the data we have, don't support that. And in fact, the other research also doesn't quite support that. But data from rape kits, again, gives us a better idea of who is actually raping, right? Not someone who's mm-hmm. convicted, but someone who's connected when someone reports through DNA. And what you find is several things. A, that they aren't just committing rape. They're committing lots of other crimes. Many of them are violent crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of thinking of them as, you know, a sexual deviant, it's really more about they're a violent person, right? They commit violent crimes, rape being a violent crime, but also, you know, murders and assaults and all these other things, breaking into your home, burglaries and, and so forth. So like, they're also committing these other types of violent crimes. So it's more you know, that the, the sexual violence is part of a larger picture of violence as in general. Mm. And that, uh, that there's the idea as well that, that, you know, for example, someone connected to the rape of a child are only interested in children, for example, you know, pedophilia or something like that. And while they may prefer that, I think in terms of thinking about patterns to that, you can see that that doesn't actually hold true in much of the data. It's more about opportunity. Mm. And criminology research will tell you that crimes are often crimes of opportunity. And so here is the sexual offenders seizing on vulnerabilities and exploiting vulnerabilities of people they perceive to be vulnerable to sexually assault them in much not quite the same, but in much the same way that they would also other crimes. So they may also rob or, you know, they may rob some person and, um, you know, mm-hmm. seize that opportunity to commit that crime. But it's not completely out of the realm of possibility that they would also sexually assault that person because mm-hmm. um, they are also exploiting that person's vulnerability. Oh, that's very insightful. And your study concluded that offenders are not a homogenous group. So... I was wondering what that means and, you know, what, what what do you mean by a homogenous group and why, why are offenders not in that? Yeah. So I, um, I think uh, the, with the homogenous group, again, that idea that like sexual offenders are a particular type of offender that, that they're just a unique type of criminal, right. That, that, that their crime is to sexually assault as compared to people who, you know, steal cars and and property theft and so forth like that that's a different kind of of crime and i think what you can really see is we did it you know sort of tried to find a typology of offenders can we look at their criminal histories and kind of pull out are there the different types of sexual offenders so in our sample these are all people connected to a sexual crime can we see differences and you do you see differences some you know, primarily commit multiple sexual offenses and aren't really committing a whole lot of, or at least getting caught for a whole lot of other violent crimes. Some mm. just commit sec- lots of sexual cri- crimes and then lots of other crimes as well. And then some 
are committing a small number of sexual crimes and a whole bunch of other kinds of crimes like domestic violence and drug crimes or whatever. So even within that to sort of say like, oh, this is again, like this is just a child rapist and this is someone who likes to rape strangers and this person is is more like an intimate partner uh, offender who may sexually assault their intimate partner, but also, you know, commits other violent acts against their intimate partner. But what you see is actually the people who are assaulting their intimate partners also rape strangers. So, uh, you know, to sort of think that, that they, that they're just staying within this one certain type of group and that they're all just one type of sexual offender isn't, isn't really what the data show. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I want to zoom out of looking at individual offenders or even, you know, patterns of offending and look at how the criminal justice system contributes to serial sexual perpetration. So how the criminal justice response is kind of, you know, adding to the number of people who are serial rapists or who are committing more than, who are raping more than one person. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I I think, I think, so the fact that kits weren't tested is of course egregious, but for those of us who do research it, you know, as part of the rape kit testing initiative in, in the United States, which by the way, has, there's $250 million push from the federal government to now like 60 different jurisdictions to test and follow up on the testing of I think at this point, 70,000 70, rape kits have now been tested as a result and more are getting tested. So, I mean, there's a massive amount of activity now in the United States around testing these rape kits. But I think that what it really has shown and this, we basically pulled off a Band-Aid. So the kits were what kind of caught the attention, right? Here's all these kits that need to be tested. But if you dig down, a kit is actually submitting a kit for testing is one thing among a bunch of different things that didn't happen with these cases. So what it really is showing is a symptom of a much larger problem, which is that we have, you know, a systemic wide issue of not following up on sexual assault cases and not Mm -hmm. giving, uh, not thoroughly investigating, not prosecuting, not providing enough support to survivors when they report and throughout the process is that we have done, you know, we have done wrong by so many victims and we didn't hold those offenders accountable in the criminal justice system. And as a result, guess what? They continued to offend. They continued to be able to assault. And in fact, sometimes in the police narratives, you can, the, the victims are reporting that the perpetrators are saying to them, in the crime, in the you know, when they're raping them, go ahead and tell. No one will believe you. I've done this so many times. Nobody cares about you. No one cares about these crimes. Mm. And you know they know that, and they continue to offend because they know that you know we've allowed them to be able to continue to do this because we are not holding law enforcement accountable. Um, I think as a society, as a larger picture. We're not holding them accountable for 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 not doing their job and not supporting victims as part mm-hmm. of this process. And as a result, all of us are now less safe. Yeah. And in Cuyahoga County in Ohio, where I am doing the research, they they've now tested. They're following up on seven thousand kits. Each one of them has been tested. They are opening an investigation on all seven thousand. And uh, just yesterday, they passed their 800th indictment mm. from these old kits. So, like, connected to 900 victims. Like, there was a tremendous amount of information and good, you know, cases that were prosecutable in this. Um, but it took the resources and the political will to to look at them again and say, what can we do now? How can we do a better job? And they are doing a better job. They have victim advocates who are providing support and counseling and all kinds of services that the victims need. They're doing it in a better way. They're, you know, taking the stance of like, 
let I don't necessarily believe the victim, but I don't necessarily disbelieve the victim. Mm-hmm. Let's go where where the evidence suggests, just like every other crime. Yeah, and I think it shows when the when the political will and the the perspective changes that significant change can happen in a community. Mm. So they've started doing the bare minimum. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. The same. Yeah. The bare minimum that we do to other crimes. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, and, you know, I think as a result, for sure, the community is safer. I mean, we do know that, you know, men are the ones commit the vast majority of sexual crimes, um, upwards of 98%. But the vast majority of men are obviously not sexual offenders. A small percentage of all men do that. But of those small percentages, they're doing it a whole bunch. Mm. So if you can disrupt that criminal action and hold that offender accountable, you will prevent future rapes um, Mm. and you will make the community safer. Yeah, because we're talking about holding offenders accountable and you know, the broader context of this year and, you know, the discussion around the response that the American criminal justice system and the police has to African-Americans and how, you know, racist that response can be. I feel like it's important to talk about how that's, that's something to think of when we talk about, you know, criminal justice responses and how they can they can be institutionally racist towards one particular community, right? I think that's uh, a very important um, d- uh, discussion to have, especially yeah. um, especially as these discussions are happening a lot in academia and especially um, around the Black Lives Matter and conversations about racial injustice in the criminal justice system. Yeah. So in our data, it's a little different in that first that victims are, in our data, when I say our data, I mean, these are reported rapes where a victim's had a sack collected and has now a rape kit collected. And they're, they're now being followed up on over about a 20 year span of time. And what you see, so, you know, you get a large number, 7,000 of these, of these kids. What you see is that, that they are disproportionately African-American so the population um, in Cleveland is um, about 50% African-American in the city itself, but the victims are disproportionately African-American. Um, mm-hmm. And if you put them on a map, they are disproportionately in, in marginalized areas and areas that um, are poorer areas where, you know, they've had long histories of disinvestment and other things. So these are also where other crimes occur. So, it, you know, it's not that surprising that rapes would also occur. That isn't to say that rape doesn't occur in wealthier areas as well. It's mm. that those may look those may look different. But we do know that that crime, all crime is sort of concentrated uh, and connected to poverty, concentrated in certain areas where it has higher, higher crime rates. So I think given given that we've done the analyses and African-American um, victims were not more likely to have um, their cases not followed up on mm-hmm. then the race didn't predict whether a case would move forward or not. Right. I think, and it's because there's so many of those, I think instead it's the race is what's, what's predicting uh, whether they were sexually assaulted and how they were sexually assaulted. So we have done analyses by race and map them. And you can see that African-American women um, were more likely to be sexually assaulted while they were walking or waiting. They were just in transit somewhere. And because they're out and exposed and in these higher crime areas, they are more likely to be targeted um, for sexually, you know, by perpetrators hunting to sexually assault and or hurt these these primarily women. Mm. Um, whereas the women who are white are, were disproportionately likely to be sexually assaulted while um, being given drugs or using drugs or alcohol or some aspect of that. So mm. I think race plays a bigger role in sort of what are your risk factors for the types of sexual assault. And of mm. course, stranger sexual assaults without DNA testing is really hard 
to do anything with um, because you don't have a suspect. Um, DNA testing has not changed that. But so I think for sure race, you know, especially in the United States, uh, elsewhere as well, but obviously I can only speak to the American experience is that it's, it's a completely pervasive race and the impact of systemic racism is pervasive in the all aspects of the criminal justice system and and that is true in the disinvestment in certain communities and the not following up on these rape cases in certain areas and so i think it's it's an important point to make because i think many of those narratives for many of the african-american women don't get talked about that narrative that you can just be walking or waiting, existing in public space and be sexually assaulted. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So how do we, you know, stop sexual assault perpetrators from reoffending? And I know that's a very broad question, but because you look at this very closely, I wonder if you have any recommendations for, you know, how we can stop serial rape rapists and you know just kind of make a start towards that goal i will um disclaim that i don't do um i don't do treatment i don't do research on the treatment of sexual offenders and don't work on the sort of uh, treatment side but i know the literature on it and um the literature fairly consistently shows that um treatment is not effective for sexual offenders Unless there are some instances, if you can, that treatment can be effective for juvenile sexual offenders, if you get them young enough. And by juvenile, I mean like, you know, under 15. Mm. Um, But that's true for other types of violent crime as well um, and violent tendencies and behaviors. So it's sadly, sadly, there's a larger conversation of like, should we really just be you know, locking these people away and throwing away the key. Mm. Um, and we know that they don't get better in prison. We know prison makes them worse and we know we're not, we're not able to, to lock them up forever and throw away the key. So we put them in the place that makes them worse. And then we release them into the community, knowing that they aren't able to really have effective treatment. So it is a, for sure a dilemma. So that's the sort of treatment literature in terms of prevention. I think, you know, I think one of the only really effective ways to prevent the crimes is to hold offenders accountable is to adequately follow up on this and to put them in prison, especially um, those offenders that are doing this 18 times, then, you know, there is no way that those person that those people should be out. And while I'm not a huge advocate of locking people away in mass incarceration, mm. it it bothers me a little bit to think that you could just give, you know, a rapist one year, put them in a place that makes them worse, and then just release them into the community uh, with limited supervision. So uh, I haven't seen anything to suggest that anything other than holding offender offenders accountable and making it making it difficult for them to do that or think that there's going to be some sort of accountability for their actions is the only way that I've been able to to show uh, in my research and then looking at what the literature says is preventing uh, these offenders from doing it again yeah I mean just to add to what you said about prison making them worse prison is also often a very violent place where a lot of men and even I think women are raped and it's 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 a difficult question because you know we do want to we're basically wondering what accountability will look like and what we're saying is that they need to be held accountable but that doesn't mean that you know mass incarceration in privatized prison prisons is the answer which it really isn't but um they need to be held accountable and um, the state response needs to be better at it. Yeah. I mean, prisons, especially again, I can only really speak to the American experience, but like, you know, they're not designed, they don't get, you know, they're not rehabilitative, they're punitive. And so, and in particular, we know, you know, violent offenders 
require a great deal more of uh, and a different response um, to treatment and to um, even mitigation of of who you can be around and how you can do this and, and so forth. And so I I don't have the answers for that. I think yeah. it's a really important larger conversation to be had about, you know, as I have two young daughters and I'm a woman myself, like, do I want these people released in my community? I certainly don't, right? Like mm-hmm. I've seen the rape reports. They hide in closets and they, you know, they do really terrible things. Like I certainly don't want that. Um, but then there's another aspect of that of like, well, what do we as a community, how do we as a community, what are we to do with these individuals? I did, there's an interesting, your your readers should look up, there's this, there's this prison or facility in Washington state, in the United States, and they call it um, Sex Offender Island. And there's some media reports and other things about it. And what they've decided, and some states in the United States have decided that some sexual offenders are just so terrible that they civilly commit them, meaning they've served their prison time for the crime. You know, the crime said, the statute says you can only have 10 years. And so they serve the 10 years. But at the end of the 10 years, somebody has decided that this person is too dangerous or the person themselves says, if you let me loose, I will continue to offend. And so they have put them on sex offender island. So they have this sort of prison slash committed institution where they put the worst of the worst. Um, it sounds like a terrible place to visit. Like it's no place that I would want to go to sex offender island. Um, you know, they're just sort of saying these people we've deemed as unable to be in with the rest of the community. And so they live there's only you know a couple hundred of them in the whole state but they put them on an island literally and it's literally like an island which is why they Mm -hmm. call it that um and put them all together i think it would be terrible if you know and like you said in terms of sexual offenders we know they're going to sexually offend so that means you're going to be in a place where you may also then be the victim and we certainly don't want people to be victimized either um Mm -hmm. um but I think many communities have to struggle with what to do with yeah. some of the worst, yeah. the worst of the worst. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, we don't, we don't have, <laughs> we don't have all the answers yet, but it's something that we need to keep thinking of and keep, you know, considering how dangerous it is for women and, you know, what we know about how prevalent sexual violence is you know it's all of these considerations need to be balanced and you know thought of but i want to ask you you know doing this research and you're looking at some of the most violent instances of sexual violence and you know you're interacting with all of this data and all these stories and how do you balance your emotional well-being with this work and you know is this research emotionally draining uh, I think that's a really good question and a good way to sort of to to also talk about this stuff. So for sure, for sure, this work is, it has, has changed the way I view the world. It has changed me. And I think that anyone who does research and any, anytime you're talking about violence or trauma, um, any kind, whether it's you know, there's many different types, gun violence, uh, child abuse, you know, whatever that you, especially research, but I think also if you're a practitioner or other things, if you are going to do this work, you have to accept the fact that it will affect you. And if it doesn't affect you, then, then, then perhaps that's the larger problem. Like if you're doing this work and you, and it doesn't somehow impact you, then maybe the work isn't for you means that you've turned yourself Mm. off so much that it it doesn't affect you. It doesn't mean it has to, I'm I'm not saying that doesn't mean it has to be all bad, but I mean, it has to affect you. We can't hear and see these things about some of the worst traumas and experiences that can happen to a person and, and, you know, not be a, you know, unless you're like a sociopath or psychopath, it has to impact you, right? Like it has to, have 
that 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 impact on who we are and how we think about the world what we then do with that i think is the um is the larger story so what is you know a is it getting to a point where it may be affecting me negatively and oftentimes if we call it secondary trauma or vicarious trauma means it didn't happen to me but because i'm sort of downloading terrible things into my brain my brain sometimes can't recognize the difference it still sees it as a traumatic event that it's trying to make sense of and so what do i do with that information if i find myself avoiding certain situations not engaging in the world not being able to sleep being overly anxious and all the other things that are actually trauma symptoms to people who actually experience the trauma, bad nightmares and so forth, then for sure treatment and seeking out therapy and other things is, is necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's true for every field that comes into contact, I think with uh, on a regular basis with trauma. However, if it isn't into a place where you're having nightmares or you're, you're seeing these sort you know, it isn't negatively impacting you in the way that, you know, that would be sort of need to seek out assistance for is that understanding. Um, I think with that comes, you know, better recognition of the suffering of other people and working towards the greater good. And so to do this work, you really have to find, that there's value in doing it and that you're making a difference in the lives of victims in the criminal justice system in the lives of children, whatever that looks like. I think as researchers, um, we don't talk about how this work impacts us as there, for example, therapists and people who work in the child welfare system, they do, they get lots of training about that and they get lots of check-ins and, they have this whole system set up to be able to process their secondary trauma. But as researchers, we think of ourselves as objective, as, you know, as there to sort of provide that scientific viewpoint, a removed viewpoint. And so that removal can make it difficult for us to process, oh, mm-hmm. no, actually, it does affect me. And it doesn't make me a worse researcher, but it does impact me, right? It's it's the normal response um, to something so terrible. So I know I've been pushing more in the criminology field, and I know there's a lot of work still being done, especially around gender violence and stuff, around really making having these conversations amongst researchers. And there's some really good resources about what it's like and how to how to handle and how to process those things. I mean. I really wish every day that we didn't have to have these conversations and we didn't have to do this work and there were no offenses and no serial offenses. But uh, I think I think what you're doing is part of the solution. So, you know, thank you so much for keeping on with it. But I want to ask you before we finish, is there is there one practical advice that you have for everyone listening that we can all implement on a day-to-day basis to end sexual violence, you know, everything and something that we can all do on our own levels to, you know, work towards ending sexual violence or even being more supportive of survivors. Yeah, I think on the individual level, um, we need to take an inventory of, of of our role and response in that. So, you know, one person can't change the system but they can start having good conversations with their children, their friends, other things around consent, mm-hmm. around getting rid of the shameful aspect of, you know, working towards talking openly if and when they feel comfortable about their own, about other people's, not being afraid to have difficult conversations. In other words, we don't want to view it as so shameful that it's just one of those things you never talk about. Um, and keeping those conversations to the forefront. I think a lot of the stuff around Me Too and Time's Up, really everyone was shocked when all these victims started talking about all their experiences. And it's because women already knew all these things were happening. They just weren't talking about them in open spaces and nothing was being done even when they were. So I think continuing to push these things to the forefront and then holding people accountable 
mm-hmm. for saying, you know, I, I if, if I'm on a campus, I deserve to have people, you know, here's all these rapes that are being reported or people know these rapes happen at this certain fraternity or this certain thing. I should be, I should be able to be safe in my community. I'm going to hold the administrators accountable. I'm going to put them on blast if they don't hold us accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have conversations with my children about good touches and bad touches. I'm going to have conversations, you know, and pay attention to certain behaviors and looking for signs of sexual abuse. And, um, and then when people do disclose learning the best response and learning how to do a good trauma-informed response when someone discloses to you um, their own sexual violence. Um, Mm. Sometimes in my experience, it's often in situations where you're not expecting it. So like you could just be at a certain thing and then someone will tell you, but you're not in this, like you weren't, it's not as if you're not supportive. It's just like, it takes you a little off guard because you're like, I'm just getting my hair done or, you know, like, I'm, you know, like, Oh, we're just at dinner. And, you know, because oftentimes the, you know, they, it, it, it doesn't come out as smoothly as people think. And especially as you do research in sexual violence, you will find that people will tell you more about their experiences because they feel comfortable with you. And mm-hmm. so I think the more you feel comfortable learning it as in, you know, as your listeners learning and talking about this stuff is to also, there's some great, there's some great trainings on the neurobiology of trauma. So look that up. Neurobiology is of trauma. Rebecca Campbell does amazing work with law enforcement to kind of explain how that is. That will help you explain, that will help explain why, why you see the behaviors that you do in yourself and in others when someone has been traumatized, why people don't necessarily fight back, why your brain remembers things the way that it did. So do your, your due diligence to learn about how trauma impacts the brain. It will give you a great understanding of what of your own behavior and other people's behavior. And then do some uh, of your homework and learning how to respond when people disclose to be supportive. And then how to have good conversations with people around consent and, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to, to, to have those conversations, I think, would go a long way to people feeling supported and reporting and so forth. I can't tell you how empowering that was to listen to. And I think generally like this whole, you know, one hour and 10 minutes of our conversation, it's been, I've learned so much and I've, you know, I feel like my brain has just expanded. So thank you so much for this amazing, amazing work that you're doing and for explaining it so well and taking the time to, and I just want to say that for everyone listening, if you, at some point suspected that you heard a dog in the background you heard a dog in the background that was Rachel's dog and I wish we had yes. we were on video so we could see the dog but um, oh she's a very cute dog but yes oh. she's wanting me to pay attention to her so yes I'm sorry about that no I think that's that's perfectly acceptable but thank you so much thank you for talking to me yeah thanks thank you mm-hmm.